What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we held on Asher Kraut with Starburst. Starburst is a global accelerator that focuses exclusively on aerospace, aviation, and defense. Within his role, Asher leads up deal flow and he spends his time sourcing and evaluating the next wave of companies looking to make real change in the world. In this talk, we discuss building a defensible market position as an accelerator, accessibility, diminishing costs, and lack of competition, leading to more opportunities within space and defense, focusing your time on problems we're solving and flaws within the venture and startup world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to the Confluence Podcast. We got a, a dear friend of mine, Asher from Starburst.era, one of my favorite firms. They do a ton of work in aerospace, defense, and really just like what venture, when I grew up, what, what I think venture or thought venture should be. Like they're actually investing in the future and things that like you really couldn't imagine. So we got the homie here today. He's going to take us through some of the things that he's interested in, give us a little bit of background. And uh, man, how about you kick it off? Because I'm just excited that we finally got you on here, especially with some of the really cool projects that you're about to release. So. Yeah, definitely. Stoked to be here. Excited that we finally got it together on the schedule. I guess I'll give a little bit of a brief intro on myself, even though it's not quite as interesting as some of the other guests. But so originally grew up in New Jersey and lived in the New York, New Jersey bubble my whole life. Came from a pretty financial heavy household. My dad traded options. He kind of ran his own boutique firm for most of my life. So I think growing up, naturally, I had an affinity for that high risk, high reward, stressful environment, largely because I was just all I knew. I don't know that was really emotionally attractive to me, but I thought for a long time, similar to a lot of people that I'm sure we, we all know, was going to work on Wall Street, was going to do the investment banking grind. Goldman Sachs internship and then get a return offer and go grind for two years and then figure it out from there. And so that was very much so my plan. I really wanted to go to U Chicago to start. I had we would have kicked it out there. That would have been beautiful. Exactly. I have I'm the youngest of seven, also, as a quick side note, which I feel like has become a, a character trait of sorts. One of my siblings lives in Chicago. I also had some weird personal obsession with that whole where fun comes to die saying. I thought that was cool for some reason. And so when I didn't get in their early decision, change the cards, I started looking out West and got into UCLA, got like a pretty nice scholarship, went to go visit for the first time. And it was pretty hard to resist. So it was perfect weather in the middle of November when there was a snowstorm at home. So moved that to LA, lived there ever since. And I think one of the important things I will note about my first couple of weeks in LA was I remember being with my father and he was helping me move in all that type of stuff and it was some random Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. and we went to go eat lunch and it was like packed everyone was eating outside enjoying it was nice out I didn't really think much of it at the time but then we went again to lunch the next day same thing at one o'clock like 
these are business people outside, like eating lunch casually. And I remember saying to my dad, what do these people do? I don't understand. Everyone has so much money. No one works. That kind of opened my eyes to there are different lifestyles out there. And there's, there are different careers than the five or six that I previously knew existed. So yeah, you guys know this story. You've heard it before, but pretty much the next two to three years was just filled with a ton of personal exploration, a ton of travel, a ton of different startups, trying to get my hands dirty on whatever I could. A couple of friends and I were working on a, a startup of our own at the time that thankfully we never raised money because it really wasn't a good idea. You got to uh, tell us what the idea was in like 30 seconds. Yeah, no, you've been out to a, a, a group dinner before where you order a side salad and your friend gets a steak. And then for some reason you're paying 50 bucks. So it was basically a mobile application that helps alleviate that check splitting process. Mm -hmm. I think we were naive to think that we had some unique take on that and someone would want to use that instead of just Venmo. So it was just not a good idea, but anyway, it definitely super valuable eye-opening experience into product development, what it takes to actually go from nothing to something, even if it's not worth much. Met a ton of mentors along the way. And then really just became obsessed personally with UI UX and diving deep into how do you solve a user's problem and how do you solve any problem for that matter. So I knew I wanted to get into some type of accelerator type thing, venture also being a component of interest. But I think for me, it was more on trying to get exposure to as many founders that scale their business as quickly as I could. I very much so still today look at life as an opportunity to gain whatever skills you want to gain as fast as you can and you're just always against the clock so i think being at starburst being in such close proximity to people literally creating the future on a fast time scale was really attractive i originally got introduced through a ucla career type thing so it was very much so by chance but i would say that i wasn't originally looking uh, my other alternative is i really wanted to go potentially work in big tech and do ui ux or product management and then realize like why would I want to do that? So that was when I found Starburst, it was just by chance. I had no idea what they were even doing. At the time, I had no idea what aerospace was. And yeah, maybe I should dive into what we do and what we're all about right now. Or, or hey, give us a quick uh, download, man. I think a lot of people will be excited about what you all work on. Yeah, so Starburst has been around for about four or five years now. Originally started in Europe, Paris more specifically as a aerospace and defense focused consulting firm. One of the co-founders, Francois, was working for a long time at Oliver Wyman, big consulting firm out there, and essentially decided there is huge innovation happening in the space. Startups are coming online like we've never seen before due to a lot of, one, geopolitical reasons and also technological reasons that we'll dive into later. But anyway, so the business started by offering really tailored technology scouting to organizations like Airbus, Telus, Safran, Northrop, Raytheon, Lockheed. Um, and eventually scaled to working with government clients as well. So we're now working with more than 50 plus global A&D organizations and even some automotive as well as government agencies. So I work pretty closely with NASA myself. We work a lot with JPL, Space Force, Air Force, and they'll come to us with some focus area that they have, say that they're pursuing some large government contract and say, we don't have the capability internally to build this. Who are the startups out there that are working on such technology and we need to meet them ASAP? Most of the Starburst team, there's about 50 of us full time. I would say like 30 of the 50 are working at any given time on a corporate related ask. And then the rest of us are on the accelerator side. So what we've done over the years is when you're doing work like that, you build a really unique market positioning in that 
you don't just know where the market's headed, but you have the biggest customers as well as investors also asking you to help them find that tech. And so that was the thought process behind the accelerator. If you could design a longer model that could uh, you know, be tailor-made to longer sales cycles of aerospace and defense, working with the government is not easy. There's so many hiccups, regulations, import, export control, all that. So if you could design a program that could really leverage the Starburst network, you'd have much larger value add than just some pitch deck support from a 13-week boot camp. That was really the thought process. On the flip side of that coin, we work with companies that are much later stage than typical accelerators. So a company we work with already have raised a seed round or maybe even a series A in some cases, and they really just want exposure to our network and understanding of how do you sell commercially to governments globally? How do you sell to defense primes? And really, how do you commercialize an industry that for so long has been dominated by a handful of players? So that's the thesis behind Starburst. And then the last piece that's pretty exciting is we're getting closer to, to finishing out the raise of what will be a, a further venture fund to, to back a lot of those companies much deeper along that same thesis of really helping them scale that the commercial products. But that's a bit about Starburst. The last piece is probably relevant to add is aerospace and defense to us is really broad in that a spacecraft propulsion system is probably just as interesting as some synthetic data generation tool for training AI models better for us, because it's all about how can you improve any piece of the value chain, not just the core ones that you might recognize. Got you, fam. So how have you all gone about meshing those two paths together? How exactly do you all see this evolving over the next few years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that this industry in specific with aviation space and defense is very different than your normal consumer tech, let's say, in that you can't just launch an app like Clubhouse and within a couple months have almost a billion users or whatever it is that they're at now. You could make the best aircraft engine in the world and it doesn't matter, no matter what you do, you can't sell that overnight just by waking up to, to sales orders. It doesn't work like that. So it takes a much more tailored approach and really understanding the nuances of how to do business in this sector in specific. And, and it's similar to some others, like the chemicals industry is probably a good one to pull out. Oil and gas is another good one. But I guess to, to answer your question most directly is that we look at it as there is supreme market opportunity to really two flip sides of that coin. So I think there's two main components you need to get real conviction behind what we're doing at Starburst. And I think one is that you believe legacy industries is under attack by startups and, and new players just because they can move more agile. They don't have to deal with the innovator's dilemma. They can be cheaper in their you know, design of their products and they can have a leaner team and all those things that you've heard before. But I think the other component that's probably a lot more interesting is that the next war will probably be fought in space in some capacity, whether that be due to adversaries hacking satellites that we have and, and other space-based assets. I don't think you'll see astronauts actually fighting in orbit. Uh, maybe you will though, but. I don't know, y'all invested in what, like Red Six? Yeah. <laughs> In-flight AR combat training, which I'm thinking now about how that could be applied to space. Yeah, or that's a good example too of if you can apply technology that exists in the consumer world, right, with AR and VR and tweak a couple things, make it dynamic and make it available for use 30, 40,000 feet above 
you know, the ground, then you have something that the U.S. Air Force can use in pilot training that you or I can use the same way we sit in, in our homes. It's not quite that simple technically, but again, the difference between selling an Oculus in, you know, Best Buy versus selling an AR headset to an Air Force commander is so different. So it's funny when you talk about this, I think about some of the other companies in you all's portfolio, like selling red six is relatively easy compared to something like Skyloom. Like yeah. Skyloom is literally hundreds or thousands of satellites that someone has to put in the orbit exactly. and then create a, a network for communication and that people then have to buy into it. Having that level of conviction is something that takes that much capital and may end up happening that many years out. Like that's when I say Starburst is doing the types of investments that you wouldn't really imagine or dream of is real. These are the kind of things. So I, I totally see what you're saying in terms of having a completely different mentality. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's personally speaking, gave me a, a real serious opportunity to take a step back and realize what are other people devoting time to and like what is important to work on. Uh, and we can dive into this later, but I think having that every day that I do and get to see the founders that have the dedication that they do. Think about the conviction as a founder you have to, to look an investor in the face and say, let's put up X amount of satellites in orbit and I'm going to do it with their money <laughs> versus give us a couple million. We'll hire a couple of engineers to build out some software app. It's inspiring. Someone who can really look a financial actor in the face and say that with like virtual certainty is pretty impressive. Yeah, these are some kids, like not kids, but these are folks coming out of Berkeley and Berkeley and Oakland telling y'all they're going to just end up <laughs> all these satellites in there. So, okay, we're getting stucklers. Before we get into the nitty gritty, what is interesting with the space tech right now? Yeah, so two sides of the coin. One is on the actual topic areas, and then the other is just more macro in that aerospace and defense, because for so long, and, and space in particular, because for so long, it hasn't been possible. Launch costs was just much too expensive. And then Elon Musk came in and drove that down a thousandfold. You didn't have the accessibility and cheapness that you do now where you can throw a small satellite in orbit and start generating data analytics for some high frequency trader somewhere that's leveraging that information to make more money. You, literally, that business model was not feasible 10, 12 years ago. So in that respect, it's honestly, a, we're seeing a renaissance given that for the first time you have circumstances change such that you can actually build on top of some of this infrastructure. So I think from a market perspective, that's what I would say. And then on the flip side of that coin, because for so long it wasn't accessible, there is a sheer lack of serious entrepreneurial talent in aviation space and defense. And I think from both an investor and a founder standpoint, that's attractive. Consumer tech, there's a ton of gifted founders that start startups every single day and know how to scale from X to Y to Z. It's not so much in, in aviation, space, and defense. You don't get that whole Theranos grandiose vision. There's a couple people that have been able to do that successfully. Elon, one of them, obviously, Palmer from Anduril, the Palantir guys. So there, there are a couple, but you certainly don't see them as frequently as you might if you were a generalist investor. And so I think that's really attractive if you can somehow find somebody coming from a tangential industry that really wants to make big change. You could have both a financial opportunity and a pretty fun ride. In terms of topic areas, I would say there are fundamental technology related problems we don't have the answers to right now, but we are trending toward 
moving forward anyway. So a good example of what I mean there is we have more smart devices coming online every day, whether that be you know, electric vehicles or more iPhones or more AirPods or whatever, any sort of connected device you can think of is requiring more and more data download every single second that it's, it's online. And not only that, we want our devices to be better, right? So if the Zoom audio isn't good, we get in a tight spot, um, to put it lightly. But that's like a fundamental problem. We don't necessarily have the infrastructure yet. And so that's why you see companies like Skyloom trying to answer the question of how do you literally get data down to the ground faster such that one, you could stream it better, but two, you could stream it at all, right? If you have an entire continent in Africa that's largely still offline, if they come online with something like Starlink, we are going to be de- demanding just so much data. It's literally inconceivable. I think the average person nowadays is multiple gigabytes. And that's without everyone driving a Tesla and without everybody driving XYZ. I think that is a really hot area, just answering that question. There's a lot of different approaches people are taking. Some are taking the on-edge computing or in-orbit computing option of, okay, maybe you don't bring it all to the ground and you do a lot of the data synthesis in the air so that, or on orbit, sorry, so that you can bring down less. So there's creative solutions that are being deployed. I think that's one that is particularly. Well, I, I literally never thought about having servers or computers in, in orbit and doing the computing there. That's oh yeah. I'll send, you, I'll send you a whole lookbook of companies trying to, trying to do that. So I'm just thinking that space is this frontier in which you can now go own the infrastructure again at a lower cost, right? So these oligopolies or these companies that have had all of this capital, they, there is an opportunity for them to be displaced and also just the growth of it is so large that there is just space and opportunity for a lot of folks to come in. So yeah. you, drop, you dropping some real gems in here, bro. <laughs> and then on the flip side of that coin too, not to belabor the point, but if you want to talk aviation, right, there are, again, when we talk about fundamental problems, like whatever you believe climate change wise, we are up against a clock more than likely. And so that said, if we just continuously keep flying and keep driving, that's not the solution. So we need to figure out how to electrify that, how to hybridize it at the very minimum. Sustainable flight, I think, is one that we've taken a keen interest at Starburst with probably most notably Zero Avia, who's developing hydrogen-powered flight, Ampere, who's doing a little bit of a hybrid electric. So we're trying to be a little bit all over that puzzle. I don't think there'll be one solution. There'll be a bunch. But I think the electrification of flight and hybridization is, is a huge area. And then my last and probably personal favorite before we switch topics is hypersonics. I don't know what you know about hypersonics, if any. Oh, yeah. The quick point there is it's getting tired of hopping on a flight from LA to New York and it taking six hours. The thought of that travel time significantly decreasing is probably going to result in us having some type of commercial supersonic flight again. The Concorde is the last one, but now you have Boom as well as Arian and probably a couple more exosonic as one. But I think I'm personally pretty interested by how do you speed up travel times that if the thought of being able to be in, let's say, Tokyo in 90 minutes from LA is, is literally insane. Yeah, that's a life changer. To me, it's just all like new levels and new means of connectivity. It's yeah. like that simple. Okay, so we, I've heard a lot from you and, and, a lot, and, and other folks in the space that the industry is at a real inflection point. Why is that? Yeah, so I think worth clarifying too, like when you say industry, you mean venture or you mean aerospace and defense venture, right? I think a little bit of both. Like I think aerospace is where, where you can see the angle from. I think a, a big thing that me and you have talked about in the past is just like venture itself 
is on the brink of seeing the the boring startups <laughs> become like old news and you're going to start to see like real venture again like the world might start to get exciting again like, <laughs> it won't be like you just keep finding ways to increase processes within enterprise infrastructure which like is a lot of what i've invested in so i'm bashing myself in this yeah and i've also invited invested in some really interesting stuff like my first ever investment with joe lonsdale was a flying car company joe aviation so which just bought uber elevate which is cool but that being said man like Within space and in venture, you believe that we're in a, at an inflection point, meaning in venture, things are going to get down to being innovative again, because we're just going to run out of alpha in other spaces, maybe. Yeah. And in aerospace, the time is now. Maybe that's what you were speaking on before with the cost, but I would love to, to just dive into that a bit more. Yeah. So a few fundamental components that I touched on earlier with, within aerospace, and if you want to talk space specifically, the cost of launch it was previously $50,000 plus per kilogram to launch. That's what NASA was paying. SpaceX is primed to drive that all the way down to 200 and maybe even sub $100 per kilogram. So when you talk about like business possibility, it's it, the world is literally your oyster. That's one. Two, again, is just the sheer need for space-based infrastructure with this data demand. And then I think three is the implications of not getting space right for any of these allied nations, whether it be the US, the UK, France even. And when I say not getting it right, meaning losing out to, to China or Russia, you, our kids could have like really a significantly different life than us in terms of growing up if, if that were to happen. So I think there's a little bit of a geopolitical component too that's forcing a lot of entrepreneurial innovation in, in the space. And so with that, the government in particular in the US uh, and the DOD is investing billions and billions in years and billions per year into various startups, hoping that they can diversify the supplier base, not just be overpaying from the same five primes they've been buying from for decades. So I think in a lot of ways, you're going you're gonna to see a, a lot more startups, even though it feels like there's a new space spec all the time, especially with Astra this morning going public via spec at 2 billion. But I think more interestingly that I don't hear often enough is that we've gone through this first wave of building out a lot of the infrastructure. So launch companies like Astra, there's a ton of them, Rocket Lab, one of them in our portfolio, Launcher, Relativity as well. And you've also seen a lot of small satellite manufacturing and improvements on performance there. So there's a lot of infrastructure that's been built out, but in terms of like diversity of value proposition and like new business models, there still really isn't that much. So I think you're going to see even more. There will probably be a second and third wave of like true innovation on top of those things on what were we not even thinking of when we did that first wave because we were so excited in the hype of space. So that is particularly exciting. That totally makes sense. I think I want to switch topics a little bit because you got some pieces that are coming out soon that I want to dig into a little bit later. But a lot of it is just, again, just highlighting some of the flaws in the startup ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about with some of the things you're seeing, like in terms of flaws from the founder side? I know that a lot of times people just say VCs have become like less change the world driven and more return driven, which is, you know, super normal, right? Like we got to make money. This is a job. And like we're driven on relative returns. Can you talk a bit about like the founder side of things and where you think the flaws are there? Yeah, I think it's probably starts best with a story about some of 
my smartest friends from school. So uh, a couple of my closest friends are really talented software engineers, product designers, et cetera, because that was the space I was like enjoying, if you will. And they all went to work at your Amazons, your Googles, your uh, Snapchats of the world. And when I talk to them and catch up with them, like pretty frequently, I ask them what they're working on. And they're working on one particular text box of thousand different screens. And they're one specific screen, one text box, one location. So when you talk about, are they really developing their skills? I'm not, or to their maximum rather, I'm not sure that the answer there is yes. And when you think about how that translates to founders, it's really hard for them to find concrete problems that they need to solve if they're in such a limited everyday work environment and being compensated at top dollar for it. Uh, I think it doesn't foster the kind of hunger and creativity that we need long term to really be at the forefront of innovation. So that scares me. But I think more specifically, even the founders that are starting quote unquote startups there's this weird obsession with being a founder and getting to write CEO and your LinkedIn blog and, and your Twitter and all of that. Uh, and I was there too in, in college. That was like a weird obsession I had too. I think, and Elon probably put this best the other night on Clubhouse. I hate to like join the, the Elon wave here, but he said something about if you need uh, motivational words, don't start a startup. And I think that's true in a lot of ways. If you need to feel good about yourself, and you want to just start a startup for the sake of starting a startup and not trying to address a real serious problem with a solution that we need. And you might make a lot of money. There's a lot of nonsensical productivity apps that I use on a regular basis that I pay for that I definitely don't need. But I think it's worth, if you're the founder, asking yourself, is it worth devoting your whole time uh, of being alive and working to something that's like non-essential? I'm, I'm not sure that the answer is yes there. So I'm rather pessimistic on the founder venture ecosystem right now. I think it's a, a scary cycle that's self-propagating itself. You have founders working on things that, for lack of a better phrase, don't really matter. Do we really need 50 different Zooms? This one we're working on right now is, is pretty good. So when you have that type of situation and then you get consumers who buy into it off the hype because investors are propping it up and they're putting big money into it. And you're seeing a TechCrunch article that's talking about it. And then you're seeing a, a promoted Facebook ad. It's really an endless cycle that I don't think ends well for the average everyday person. One will be in the same spot we're in 20, 30, 40 years from now. And that's scary. If you look back even just 20 years from now, do cars really look that different? No. Do laptops look that different? Yes and no. They're sleeker, they're cleaner, but I would say they're largely similar. The iPhone is like a one-off iteration of the BlackBerry, which was 15 plus years ago. The iPhone's largely been the same for 15, 18 years. So we're at risk of waking up when 10 years from now when we have kids and like realizing wait, we actually just didn't do that much. So I don't know, what, what's your thoughts on that? Do you not, or does that not scare you? Yeah, I find that we, we live in a world right now where a lot of people, like, and I'm going to just take this out a few levels. Yeah. Right? There's one component in which people are constantly trying to figure out what the drivers are of success, happiness, et cetera. And that oftentimes in the society that we've been taught to live within comes down to capital and accumulation of such capital. And 
I think that oftentimes solving real problems is not the fastest way to get to capital, at least in the world we live in today, which means that we just need to realign incentives. And, and we can dive into that. And then two, I think we're in a, a very interesting place because when I think about my most logical self, even as an investor, right? Like people who tend to be able to solve the biggest problems are the ones who have enough capital to be able to do that. So let's say solving a real problem is really hard, has really low odds of success, and that's why people haven't done it. The first thing you'd want to do is to get credibility, to get someone to be willing to let you build a thousand satellites in space and have enough money yourself to be able to maybe pay for part of that or to keep yourself afloat for the 20 years that might take or 10 years that that might take. So I think inherently either most people are lost and don't really know what drives them. I think that social media has contributed to that. I think that the quote unquote American dream and now really the global dream because it's been sold the Western dream, which is based on a lot of BS, keeps a lot of people out of the mix. And then the most logical folks, like they're going to go for the low hanging fruit first. And the question is, how many people who go for that low hanging fruit and then are in the position to win or those who truly are willing to like sacrifice it all? Like how many of them are then put in a position to have the knowledge of the problems that truly need to be solved? I think from a, like a mathematical perspective, that percentage is, is actually really low, right? Like you look at the wealth gap, that's one. And the education gap, that's two. Then the class gap, then the gap of opportunity. These things are all very difficult. And I think that if we as a society, because I think this is all societal things. If we as a society shifted what we valued and what we pushed through the media streams, and which has been happening a bit over the last few years, then that will start to change things from the ground up and, and just reshift the American, Western and, and global psyches. And I think people like you doing some of the kind of products you're doing and, and the interviews you're doing and people like Elon Musk, who's become a celebrity, like the, these people are shifting that and I just hope that it continues. But I am aware that where we ended up today is tough. Yeah, I hear that. I think I, I would say two things in response to that. One is that even with someone like Elon, he's become a celebrity, but I would argue like the, the clubhouse the other night highlights the reasons that he's a celebrity to some for a completely different reason than what he is. To most, he's the guy that wants to get us to Mars. And, and they spoke about that for a long time. And that's cool. <laughs> and that's fascinating. But like, when I look at that guy, I literally look at him as somebody who quite literally created an industry for the lack of a better phrase. Like he, he successfully through his vision of SpaceX created the space industry. And that's different from let's go to Mars. One of them is real opportunity maker. The other one is a, a long out there dream. We're still, you know, years away from doing that. But on the one hand, he, within 10 years, maybe 15 years of starting this company, quite literally created trillions and trillions of what'll be GDP growth. That's insane. And I think for Elon, it's, yes, I hear the capital point. Obviously, he has deep pockets for sure. But that guy threw everything on SpaceX for the most part and Tesla. He, he found the combination of what he was good at, what he wanted to work on, and where he could create value for the world that he went after with everything he had. Where do you think, where do you think this all heads over the next few years or next few decades? I think we're headed for some really large financial event. And I, that's not an uncommon opinion, I think. So it's not like being contrarian to say, but... 
I think the normal average everyday person has so much more exposure right now in the free markets than they've ever had with this whole SPAC nonsense. And I think that the GameStop thing last week is great evidence of that. I have some friends that bought in on that hype foolishly, and then now it's down 50% this morning. I don't think this whole ease of capital on the investor side too, just like dishing out ridiculous valuations to companies that haven't built anything or don't even appear to be solving any sort of concrete problem. I don't think that lasts long. So I think probably in the next, I don't know, two to three years, we'll see a dramatic shift, probably similar to 08, but maybe even worse. And then you'll have a huge market correction and we'll see what happens there. I just am worried that our generation, or at least a lot of my friends, aren't spending enough time thinking about what to devote their time to long-term. And so that worries me because we might have a situation where some of the really smart people we know in that whole crisis might not be worse off at all. Like some of my friends working at Amazon, et cetera, like we might go through that whole crisis and then be completely unaffected financially and then just continue on the status quo. And that's scary because those are our, our really smart people. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I really don't know the concrete answer. I feel that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree that we're, we've been in need of a correction for I don't know how long. And like we've had all of these random quote unquote innovations extend that, whether it be SPACs or whether it be tax cuts or novel innovations or investor psyche shifting markets like it's odd that we haven't had this shift yet so it's definitely coming you need to, everybody who's listening to this start buying inverse assets please <laughs> but or at least get be be very capable of getting liquid if you need to so anyway look man i think we've jammed a lot like me and you just talk and kick it and uh, talk about a lot of things that we get that we can go further on here. But what I'd love to do is let us hear Clay's voice a bit. <laughs> Take us through the quick fire round and then let you ask us a question or two if you want. Cool. Yeah. Should we do these at the end? Meant to be answered in two sentences or less. So first question we have is what's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's something that I still hear even from my coworkers, which is that I don't know that it's a piece of advice that anybody ever gives, but it's just a known thing, which is that when you're younger, you should like not be working a hundred plus hours per week. And while I don't think that's true, I think it's really bad advice if somebody is like overemphasizing this whole like life work balance when you're young. I think if you're working, if you're below the age of, I don't know, 28 and you're working less than certainly less than 55 hours a week. I feel like it's a waste of time in the sense that it's going to be very hard for you to activate that grind as easily as you can at that age. And if you're not doing that when you're younger, like it's going to be really difficult to flip the switch. So I think you want to work a lot harder than people really think that you should when you're young, at least. Totally. I feel like that was, that was one of those issues that was discussed so heavily, like around this time last year on Twitter and then everybody dropped the conversation because we had the whole pandemic, which kind of overshadowed that. But yeah, no, I think it's good advice. All right. Next one. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? A lot of people have said long walks, so I'm not going to say that. Probably just really being skeptical of everything I hear, read, and even say myself, like always continuously doubting. I feel that has brought me into some of the most interesting conversations. So just continuing to do that every day, I think is tremendously valuable. So it doesn't matter what I read until I meet them. Like I try not to believe it. Not because I think that they're wrong, just because 
I don't know what angle they wrote that with. So that's definitely one new thing I've been consciously trying to do more of. Yeah, totally makes sense. All right, next one, aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Yeah, to, to this question, similar to what I just answered, but I would say the the noise that's out there in venture right now is utterly ridiculous. The ease of publication right now is easier than we've ever seen. You could, even myself included, which is, I go back and forth on this, but you could publish a Medium article in five seconds and have no real credentials to write that versus years ago when you had to write a real tangible book. That took a lot of more work and, and respect that you needed to get that done. So I think for an example without using names is a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed a kid to potentially intern with us. And a couple hours before that interview, we read a Medium article of, uh, about something he wrote about how to break into venture and like different things you can do in venture when you're young. And it's one, what do we know, let alone what does he know? So I think just like consciously filtering out that noise, trying to make sure that you're staying laser sharp on whatever it is you're focused on and not letting anything bend that. Totally. I think it all makes sense. I think there's just been this explosion of articles, thought pieces around breaking into venture. And I, I have two issues with it. A, I don't <laughs> think there's a standard route for anybody to get into here. I think everybody ends up out of pure luck. And B, it doesn't really help you become effective in the role once you land it. There's only a very small fraction of people that are able to break in. And then once they break in, there's so many people that get in and quickly realize they don't know what they're doing. I was one of those people. I think I'm still one of those people just trying to filter out all the noise, find what actually matters to actually spend your time reading is super valuable. It's all to say good piece of advice there. All right. Got two more quick questions for you and then we'll hand over the mic to you to ask questions. So next one, what's your best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? I'm realizing this could be pretty closely related to what you just answered. Yeah, maybe it's more related to an earlier thing I said, which is, I think my biggest advice is if you're really a young person, and your goal is to quote unquote, break into venture, I would probably take a long, hard pause and, and think about what are you trying to achieve by doing that. People are right now falsely associating venture with an attractive asset class and it's a really good financial prospect and oh, like you can get exposure to founders and all of this. And I want to be working on a variety of topics. But I think if your goal is to learn how to like scale a business and all of that, then you'd probably be suited, better suited if you want to break into venture working at a smaller fund where you really get a very hands-on experience. And it's probably something you both probably feel passionately about. But I just think that whole zeitgeist of, oh, I want to break into venture. Let me read as much material as I can on it. I don't, I actually don't even know if that's valuable. Maybe it makes more sense to go work at a startup and we'll reflect on it in 15 years from now if, and decide what was best for us. But it might make more sense to go work at an early stage startup. I, I don't know yet. Yeah, totally agree again. All right. Last question here. Who is a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? Could be more than one as well. Yeah, I feel like I got to follow the theme here of not answering in two sentences or less. Um, so I'll probably, probably give you two or three. The first one is one of the co-founders of Starburst Van. He, he's the epitome of break the system and don't believe anything they tell you. And not in a weird freak show way, but in a way of if you're after material wealth and what people identify as value, you should really question what you're doing every day because that's a really boring life to live. And if you want to make real change, you have to figure out where it is you can create value for the world. So I think Van, obviously, through his like literal mentorship has been invaluable and, and just 
being able to listen to some of the outlandish nonsense I probably fed him early on when I was pitching myself to him is insane. And then I would say on another one that I work most closely with is Benjamin from Starburst. He manages our whole portfolio and the accelerator program at large. That guy is not impressed by most anything. So if you impress him, you're doing something really right. I would say he's been a great mentor in understanding what is quality and what isn't and what you should expect out of yourself. And then the last one I'll give you is one of my best friend's father, who's the CEO of a company called C-Spine that's publicly traded. He didn't become CEO of a company till 25 years into his career. And so I think one thing I really value about him is he understood what he was after, which wasn't the CEO title. He really wanted to get to a spot where he felt like it was the right time for him to take the keys and not just be that overwhelming, I'm a founder, I'm CEO, let me put it in my bio right away type thing and let that come naturally while seeking out valuable lessons. So I respect him and he's you know, been willing to pick up a phone call whenever. So he's a great dude. Love it. Love it. That's awesome, man. I think that wraps up the quick questions and core questions that we had for you, but we're trying to do a better job of allowing guests to ask us any questions so it's more back and forth rather than just us peppering you with questions so with that said do you have anything that you're dying to ask us yeah i would say given that i've listened to the podcast a bunch and people have asked you why did you start confluence and your answers are usually we wanted to learn from the best or learn from other people etc i would take that one step further and be curious to know like where does this lead in the sense of, let's say you do accumulate a lot of this knowledge, like in your own professional and personal lives, what do you want to be doing long-term? Let's say you get all the valuable investors you can, you speak to people that are way more accomplished than I, and you learn a shit ton. Like, where do you go? Uh, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I can answer it like succinctly yet, but I think short answer really condensed is just build up as much goodwill as possible without being self-promotional and just be a resource for a bunch of different people within the industry, build up goodwill, have people trust us. Cause I think this is a really long game of accumulating trust from people we know and respect and eventually see what that leads to, whether that's figuring out how to invest in stuff directly ourselves, joining another startup that we think is like really going to the moon and we want to get in early before it's obvious to everyone else. I don't know. I don't know if that's a clear answer or not, but I think short term, I haven't defined exactly what this leads into, but I think over the long term, it's just developing and building more trust and goodwill with a group of people that we know and respect. That's a a fluffy answer, I know, but. This this man, Clay, keep it close to chess. (laughs) Wait, we got to talk to PR about that. No, I'm kidding. Dude, I don't know where I think this will go. But what I will say is that VC is about networking and genuine connection, both on the founder side and the venture side or the investor side. And like my vision and my goal would be to help as many people on both sides of the spectrum as possible. I guess the thesis on goodwill for for, uh, Clay. And then just let this be a place where everyone comes to make themselves better. And in doing so, we'll see, man, like maybe it'll become a fund one day. 
maybe it will maybe me and clay will go together and join someone's fun and we'll build on top of it fun but i feel like we can do that in our 40s or 50s like let's find a problem to solve first yeah i agree i'm actually really interested in doing eir programs i'm really interested in like finding an incredible founder and just going to build that i don't know when i'll go do it maybe tomorrow maybe in a year but and i'm not going to delete this from the podcast so it just it's out there now but <laughs> But I agree. You're actually a very inspiring person. <laughs> this, this conversation is just making me think a lot about if we are as smart as we think we are, and we're dumb VC, so we, we don't think we're that smart, but we probably should be dedicating our time to something more meaningful. Something to think about. Something to think about. But fun conversation. I appreciate you guys having me on. For sure, man. Sending love. And thank you so much for coming through. Appreciate you and an awesome conversation. Definitely a lot of fun. Later, guys. Later. Huge thanks again to Asher for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to link up with Asher, we've linked his social profiles within the description below. You can find his contact information within the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at Tyler at GPV.com or myself at Clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.